This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is May 5th, 2022, and this is episode 288. I'm Strack Lundbom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, just a lot of stuff is happening. We have by-elections here in BC and fundraising numbers. We have a conservative debate and the official candidate list. And America continues to be a shit show, which ripples north of the border and a lot of other stuff is happening. Like, where was, could all of this news not come out a little more evenly so that like those quiet weeks, we could talk about some of these stories in more depth and in a week like this, we could just dive into one or two. You, you say that like we don't always end up going longer than we intend to every time we record. What'd you just say? It'd be great if we could go a little <laughs> shorter tonight because we're both tired. Too bad. Thanks, patrons, for helping make this show possible. Make us feel good about the time we spend every Thursday evening talking politics for you, go to patreon.com slash politicoast. We'll invite you to the Slack and you can talk politics with us all week long because we're always there. Let's jump into the horse races here in British Columbia. The results of the Vancouver Kilshana by-election, we had a little discussion in our DMs about how to actually pronounce it. I don't think anyone actually knows. That's not true. But the results are in and we'd basically forgotten about it because it was almost as boring as the 2021 federal election results. Yeah, so Kevin Falking, to no one's surprise, won the by-election. He ended up getting 58.6% of the vote, so the only bit of uncertainty of whether he would clear the 50% mark, he, he did fairly handedly. Coming in second place was Jeanette Ash at... Less than a quarter of the vote at 24.48%, followed by the Greens at 9.6%, and then uh, the Conservatives pulled in at 6.6%, with the Libertarians getting a tenth of that at 0.6%. Preliminary turnout's just under 28%, so these are very small numbers, like 6.6% for the Conservatives looks great until you realize it's 698 votes. And maybe that was all of the anti-vaxxers in, well, there was another 66 voting for the libertarians. Maybe that 750-odd people is all they could pull out, even in this campaign. So, this doesn't tell us much for a general election. This doesn't, to me, suggest the conservatives are on a big swing up. It's compared to 2020, the liberals are up 2%, the NDP is down 4%. And the Greens are down 6%. But all of those are like, it's such a low low turnout. And it feels like no one really tried. Because like, well, Falcon got 6,200 people out. That's great. Would have gotten probably 15,000 in a general election. Yeah, by-election turnouts are always smaller though. Like what will be valuable to know is how much each spent, each party spent. That will tell us how much they actually did try. I had a sense... The NDP was trying somewhat based on getting the star candidate, Jeanette Ash, and the number of emails I was getting. But emails and social media campaigns that they were pushing is very cheap. I take it they didn't even have a campaign office, so potentially they didn't spend very much. This is not a good result for the Greens. They could have used this to try to – they weren't going to win it. Getting 3,000 people to vote in Vancouver for the Green Party shouldn't be impossible for them. And that would have put them it, into second. It wasn't for a lack of uh, sending out the emails either. I, I'm on the Greens mailing list, and they were coming in fast and furious during that. Now, I, I think they may actually still have me as back from when I actually lived in the riding. But yeah, they they were they seem to be doing quite a bit, at least on the the cheap, easy to do con stuff. And there you have it. Kevin Falcon is now pending member of the legislative assembly he's not actually been sworn in yet he ex he wants to be very soon obviously but he cleared his easiest first hurdle as leader <laughs> didn't fuck it up that's good for him but the next challenge will actually be coming up quite soon the 
Another by-election will have to be called for Surrey South following the retirement, as we've talked about, of Stephanie Cadeau, and the BC Liberals have announced their candidate for it. RCMP Sergeant Eleanor Sturko will be putting her, has put her name forward and been nominated. It's actually unclear if she's been nominated or appointed, but she is the candidate the Liberals are running. So she's most well known as being the face of the Surrey RCMP, so the, the Liberals are clearly leading into that whole kerfuffle, the, the whole saga around changing over the RCMP in Surrey a bit. Fairly high profile candidate, I think decent get for them. I, I don't know the inner internal Surrey politics enough of the, the RCMP transition to really get a good sense of how, how big a boost this is, but nevertheless, having at least someone with a, a pre-existing profile is going to be good for them probably it, it is also a seat that is fairly safe for them in 2020 they won with 47 percent of the vote 2017 the the liberals came in with 50.9 percent to the the ndp's 32.9 and we'll have to see what the by-election results are but i think we're going to lean I expect that likely going forward, we're going to see the Liberals be at least a little higher than their rather uh, dismal low point of 2020. Yeah, Sturko's interesting. She's not just a cop. She's a former reservist, has worked in media production. The Surrey Now Leader story that we'll link to in the show notes also talks about how she has been a champion of human rights particularly relating to gender, sexual orientation, harassment, equity, inclusivity. It also mentions that she's, you know, really tried to make sure the LGBTQ plus community is welcome in the RCMP and in society and has worked with her uncle on a book about LGBT purges in Canada. So, it's clear because it mentions in here that Falcon approached her specifically to run that there's a not like entirely different, but a, vo- a, a face that the, he wants to bring forward, I think, as the BC Liberals that is more open to diversity than some of the challenges they've had in the past. And I think that's probably a positive. I don't know how much this well, says I, about the debate over the RCMP in Surrey. Like, this is not the first person from the LGBTQ community that the, the Liberals have run or had elected. Like, it's good that uh, they're putting someone forward here, but this is not um, you know, particularly groundbreaking for the Liberals because that, that ground was broken many years ago. It could be a tight race, though. Like It was 47 to 43% in 2020. It was a 1,176 vote margin. That said, by-elections tend to not go to the government, but this would be one the NDP will probably try harder in than they did in Vancouver, Kilchenna. I've heard that the NDP are likely to try have Pauline Greaves run again. That's who ran in 2020 for them. She's an instructor, a black woman who was born in Jamaica, past director of UBC Women's Center, and has worked at a number of uh, organizations and nonprofits and holds just a bevy of degrees. So if it is the two of them, it'll be a very interesting race to watch. And finally, the last thing to watch is just today, the first quarter interim financial reports came out from Elections BC. And I believe the fundraising results for the BC Liberal leadership race should be coming out in the next week, which will give us a much more wholesome picture of how each of the parties is doing. But the NDP is once again in the lead in fundraising in BC, getting 738000 from 7,800 donors. The Liberals and Greens both got about 2,000 donors, but the Liberals got twice as good, twice as big of donations from theirs. They got about 325,000, and the Greens reported 164,000. The Conservatives reported $7,000 in donations from 214 people, and the rural BC party that is required to report because they get some per vote subsidy uh, did not collect any money. A little bit of dark news there for the Liberals since they're not growing their donor base and they're on the same par as the Greens. The Greens have room to grow their donations, but the NDP Although, is by far ahead again. Yeah, but with the the leadership race that did, albeit did wrap up partway through the quarter, a lot of the fundraising efforts and the, the party donors will have been focused on that. So I, I'm going to be much more interested to see what the Q2 financial reports are tell us in terms of what their fundraising numbers are and whether once they get out of the leadership race mode altogether they're able to to rebound a bit and that's definitely going to need to be a part of Ken Falcon's work is rebuilding the Liberals fundraising machine because that is something that just did not happen under Andrew Wilkinson 
much to the the party's loss because I don't know for some reason they just didn't do the work to adapt to the new fundraising rules and they suffered for it and didn't go into last election with the the war chest they needed and are going to need to reverse that if they want to actually be competitive next time. Yeah, it, I think it's far more important for Falcon to get their fundraising in order and to make a purpose for the liberals than for them to win Surrey South. Like if they hold Surrey South, it makes no difference to the amount of power they hold in the legislature. If they lose it, it'll be a bit embarrassing for a couple weeks, a couple months, but people will forget. Longer term, they need the money though. They need the seats as well, but one, one seat in the short term isn't the end of the world. Speaking of leadership races, though, let's talk about the Conservatives. Lots happening at the federal level. The party has announced the official candidates. No surprise. Pierre Polyev, Jean Charest, Patrick Brown, Leslin Lewis, Scott Aitchison, Roman Babber, who we've talked about all of them a little bit before, Babber a little bit less, and we're not going to talk about him anymore today because he's boring and a fringe. What's interesting in the official announcement, first off, Leona Leslev uh, had announced prior to the cutoff that she wasn't going to make the amount of money, so she pulled out. Mark Dalton, it turns out, also couldn't get the $300,000, so the BC Liberal MLA will not be running for federal conservative leadership. And then three other men uh, were all rejected, it seems, by the party. None of them had been elected in the past. You have Joseph Borgalt, a businessman from rural Saskatchewan, a convoy-type guy. He says he raised more than 367000 but doesn't know why he was rejected. Joel Etienne, who has run for the Conservatives in the past, says they're for preparing a formal protest and is going to try and sue or follow whatever appeals necessary. And Grant Abraham, a consultant who ran for British Conservatives in 2019, is also unsure why he's been rejected, saying he raised the money necessary. I don't get why you'd protest at this point, because you're not going to win. None of these people are going to win, regardless. I'm also curious if they honestly don't know or if they got told the reason why and they just don't like it and are made publicly. You would think if the party had concerns, they would, as part of the back and forth of the vetting process, will have actually talked to them about it. And it, in theory, would not be a mystery as to why, what the major issue with their candidacy would be. I think in one of the articles I read, the party said that, yeah, we told these people why they weren't in. And who knows, maybe it's embarrassing social media stuff that they don't want to cop up to. It's probably not just support for the convoy because Roman Babber and Pierre Polyev are in the race. So, oh, and, and, and Leslie uh, Lewis. Yeah, Leslie Lewis too. So, probably the last we'll hear from them unless Etienne is really good at fighting his party. But I think the more interesting thing that also came out this past week was the fundraising data because, like we said, above Q1 fundraising data is coming out uh, from Elections Canada. They released data on leadership campaign fundraising. Unfortunately, it only goes up to March 31st, and some of these candidates only entered in like mid-March or started reporting in mid-March. Nevertheless, it gives us some initial data on how everyone's doing. We're told Pierre Polyev has the most money at 545000 Jean Charest actually fairly close at this point at 490,000, Leslin Lewis 225,000, Patrick Brown a mere 115,000, Scott Aitchinson 90,000 and Roman Babber at 54,000. Even more interesting than that, Eric Grenier breaks down on Twitter the average donation size, so you can see like Pierre Polyev is getting a lot of small donations cuz his average donation is $163. Similarly, Leslin Lewis is 155. Jean Charest is getting a mix of big and small donors with an average size of 815, but Scott Aitchinson's surviving on bigger donors with $1300 as an average and Patrick Brown like only has big donors maxing out at $1586 average donation. And what that tells me is Unless things have changed for Patrick Brown, his campaign is less real than the others. Like there's a small number of people who really like him and have a lot of money that want to see him do well. 
But beyond that, there's no grassroots support. Everything else is too early to really say. Yeah, it's interesting, Umbrella. His strategy is very focused on doing the signups. Like he's basically doing no media, no paid paid advertising, as far as I can tell. It, it is hyper-focused, and that probably means all his money is going to uh, his his sign-up operation. That means paying organizers and, and the like to, to run that, which, yeah, maybe means his strategy doesn't actually require him to, to pull in a huge amount of money, because once, once he has enough sign-ups... In theory, just engaging with them is the path to victory. He doesn't actually need to do a lot of the other work to to win over candidates and do the the comms that's tip, typically associated with that, and where a lot of the the paid ad money goes. Still interesting, though. Mm-hmm. Sure, I, I was so surprised me a bit. Not that it was high, but I actually figured it would be closer to to Brown Agentson's numbers because I had heard through the grapevine that. He was pretty much uh, stocking his war chest up with kind of the the Montreal and Quebec City and Toronto establishment types who are you know, healed and able to, to pour money in. And maybe that's what he got initially. Like his average donation size is fairly substantial, 815, but he's also starting to get some of that small donations and $500,000 in a month or two is a respectable amount to raise when you're limited to whatever it is 1600 per person roughly so yeah q2 is going to be far more interesting it's the small dollar donation starting to come in that and bringing down its average there is interesting because it it definitely did seem at the start that that charray was the the candidate of the the old guard establishment types in the major cities who maybe aren't necessarily the, the type of people who are small dollar donors to the conservative party. Before we talk about the debate that happened today, I just, while we're talking about fundraising numbers for all the parties overall, the conservatives brought in about 5 million in the first quarter, the liberals 3.2, the NDP 1.3, the greens and people's party both brought in about 400,000, which is something and the block 350,000. So about where I would have pegged them all, except yeah, actually exactly where I would have pegged them all. So no real surprises there. Conservatives continue to be really good at fundraising nationally, but not as much provincially. Let's talk about the debate, the unofficial debate that happened tonight. Five of the six candidates were there. Patrick Brown decided to focus on membership signups. This is the event hosted by the think tank formerly known as the Manning Center, the Canada Strong and Free Networking Conference. Scott, you watched some of it. I saw a couple tweets about it, but didn't get through it yet. Yeah, so when we went to record, I was most of the way through, but hadn't uh, gotten all the way through. And that's partly because they decided to air this debate during the middle of the workday for Western Canada, which can can we just pause and reflect on the irony of Preston Manning's organization, a a, a man who spent his entire career uh, in politics channeling the discontent of the West and it's being considered an afterthought to central Canada for them to schedule a debate when the West is at work. It's all taped and streamed now. You can watch it whenever you want, Scott. No. It's amusing. That it is. Um, yeah, got most of the way through. I, I left off at the part where everyone was uh, dunking on Patrick Brown because a Patrick Brown-related question had been asked and he wasn't there and everyone took their uh, chance to get their licks in on did they, that. Did they do the great thing where they just left an empty chair for him? No. Disappointingly, no. Oh, boo. It's nice to have that empty podium or empty chair, and then everyone can just shame it. Yeah, and then you could cut to it whenever there's a, a reference to Patrick Brown. Like it, it would have worked much better in that case. Honestly, he should have shown up because even if his strategy is very focused on targeting the signups, he is in theory, if he wins this thing, gonna actually have to govern the party. And 
being a no-show at the the events makes it hard to establish that relationship with the rest of the party that he will need if he wants to be long in the in the post. Well, and if he doesn't manage to sign up a majority of the party's members, he's going to need some second choice votes. So, he needs to convince somebody else out there to put him second. Yeah, he, he could have taken a couple hours out of his day to, to show up here and then out uh, the thing was held in Ottawa and like hit up a bunch of various ethnic events within the city when, when he was there. Like, there. There really is, in my opinion, no excuse for, for him to miss that, even if the, in theory it made sense in the, the Brown War Room. The other big takeaway I saw from Twitter was that Jean Charest was good? Livelier than he's been to date, which admittedly is an extremely low bar. But yeah, he was fairly animated, showed some actual passion and intensity there. And if that was the energy he'd been bringing the whole time, I might actually think he has a shot at uh, winning this. Him and Polyevo definitely sparred quite a bit. There was a more than a few exchanges about whether or not he had raised or lowered taxes as Quebec Premier that was just exhausting, but clearly both of them felt really passionate about and got pretty loud and snippy about. How was P- Polyev then? Because I saw some reactions on Twitter that found him to be all the worst things you hear about him and none of the like, like the smarmy college campus arguer rather than like a professional, a polished politician who can command a room while still getting some good barbs in. <sighs> He was Pierre Polyev. Like, at this moment, he's a known quantity, and he didn't deviate from that very much. You know, his message seemed to be well-received by the crowd, but yeah, my, my take on it is that all, all the poor, bad qualities being that kind of uh, a little too in-your-face, always needs to have the last word and be right type of person was, was showing through in spades. And I heard Leslin Lewis went after the Wokes, which is not surprising oh that's that was a pretty common theme with a lot of the candidates uh baber as well polyev it is what you'd expect on that and how about scott Uh, honestly the (laughs) and how about scott scott hson uh he was playing the grown up in the room let's all try and remember we're actually the same party and we need to be a party that can come together and actually win but while still getting a, a you know, share of dates in that Trudeau and being critical of when certain members of the party can engage in some conspiracy theory talk that drives the voters they need to win in the GTA away, which Leslin Lewis took as a uh, personal attack on her, despite not being mentioned, which I, I think is a little telling. It's so amazing when <laughs> like, they realize they're being talked about and... They're not being named, so to just be like, you can't complain about the conspiracy theorists in this party. Some of us might identify as such. Yeah, he he, he came across. Yeah, Aitchison came across as a, probably the most prime ministerial and the the one that seemed less angling for the leader of the opposition job than the actual prime minister's job. But I, I don't know. I'm not sure how much that's going to help him in the vote like that the energy in the conservative party right now is not necessarily towards the kind of reserved responsible statesman so i don't know we'll have to see on that one but uh i think if you didn't go into this wanting an angry fighter necessarily, but some of it was more of a uniter talk to all Canadians. He probably came across as the best. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's almost like I'm just thinking like Patrick Brown not being there probably benefits Scott Aitchison the most. Because Brown is I think tried to pitch himself more in that similar kind of role, but by not being on the stage it just like defaults to the other guy who's not the front runner, who's not Polly Ever Charay, who are battling, who's not the social yeah. conservative. And Aitchison's like clearly also vying for the Charay line of being 
or Chevrolet Lane in the we're, we're the responsible more more moderate people who can actually win the places we need to win. But yeah, having one less person on the stage, also fighting for that lane, definitely, I think, helps him and Sherwood. Anything else to talk about on conservatives? The the only other thing I would mention on this is this was heated. Like I, I've never seen a leadership debate get this heated and this personal, and man, I, I have a hard time seeing how there aren't some pretty big wounds in the, the conservative coalition when this is all over whoever wins is going to have quite the job ahead of them patching things up and it's not a party that's easy to hold together at the best of times it's notable that like only half the people running for leader are currently mps polyev lewis and hson like if sure doesn't win i don't think anyone's expecting him to run for mp like he's in I mean, this, this for everything, or he's just going to go do something else. At this rate, I, I think Polly Ever is more likely to light his uh, nomination papers on fire than sign them. So, that takes care of at least one issue if Polyev wins for him. Like if Sheree wins, I could see Polyev maybe burying the hatchet a bit, and Sheree offering him something prominent because he needs to keep him on board. If Lewis wins, everything's just going to hell. Um, <laughs> for the party, that is, and possibly the country. I, I don't think she's going to win. Yeah, she did better than expected last time, and I, I think is reasonably good at pulling in a lot of the votes in the more rural parts of the prairies and the like. But she's a wild I think card less, long shot. Yeah, I think well, if she does well, it's because she's doing well where we can't see. Sort of like Brown is also working a lot of places that are hard to see from the mainstream coverage. Yeah, I think the thing with Lewis, though, is last time she was a a fresh face and someone who didn't come in with any preconceptions with her. And, and that, I think, allowed her to, to do quite well at reaching out to new groups. Let's just say she's had a lot more exposure in terms of her views and, to put it gently, eccentric opinions on a few things. That I'm not sure it's going to suit her well compared to being that kind of more of a blank canvas last time. You don't think it's a mainstream view to accuse the prime minister of orchestrating a socialist coup of his own government, proving that she knows what neither of those words mean? Yeah, I I don't think that's helping. All right. <laughs> From the conservative debate to the debate the conservatives don't want to have the big news story of america and pretty much the whole world pays attention when america does its thing <laughs> was the draft supreme court leak from uh politico on the upcoming dobbs decision that according to politico and it's been confirmed a few times that this is a legit thing that could be the real decision roe v wade could just be burned to shreds and then you have just dozens of states possibly half of them instantly criminalizing abortion and leading to women dying i don't think either of us is interested in getting into the u.s politics side of it because it's dark depressing and everyone's talked to death about it the kind of canadian side is the coverage that's followed looking at what is the state of abortion access in Canada. And thankfully, I think I didn't see a whole bunch of articles just smugly patting ourselves on the back, but I did see a lot of coverage. Globe and Mail, CBC, CTV, basically everywhere did a critical look at like, what is the state of reproductive health care in Canada? And is it good? Some of it was the like, could Morgenthaler be overturned in Canada? And it seems very unlikely. Yeah, it, it, that is pretty much a, a zero possibility. Like anything could happen. It won't happen quick. Just like Roe v. Wade wasn't overturned overnight. But there, but is, a much, there like is a much stronger constitutional basis for Morgenthaler. It's centered in Section 7 of the Charter versus Roe v. Wade. Was a little bit more controversial drawing 
from the privacy rights that weren't explicit in the Constitution of the U.S. Turns out our document's better because it's newer. And also, like, Canada, yeah, we're a different country. We have different constitutional frameworks, institutions, political culture and everything. And yeah, fundamentally different here on this. And there isn't the same organized attempt to overturn this with anywhere near as much popularity, capacity, or real capability to, to drive that in the way that there is in the States. I'd say there definitely is an, organ- there is like an organized can't... effort, right? In Canada, it's small, yeah, it's, it's fringe. fringe. But like, it that, is that's fringe the in the US too. The only reason it's effective is because it has captured a political party. And if well, Leslie you... Lewis wins, it's captured the Conservative Party of Canada. Yeah, but that, that's like a pr- like every Republican uh, politician tots it up, and they have done for the past fifty years. Where in in Canada, uh, it's just not the case. Conservatives don't want to talk about this, as mentioned. It divides the party with a majority of conservative voters. According to the one political article, fifty six percent wanting the next leader to support abortion rights. Like it's just. A case where it unites most of the parties and pretty starkly divides the other party to the point where they just don't want to touch it with, uh, particularly from the leader's office. I think the dividing line in Canadian politics right now, especially in light of the news in the US, is the conservative line is status quo. Things are fine here. We're not going to talk about it. We had... Candace Bergen issue a directive that got it leaked immediately telling caucus members in in the House of Commons and in the Senate to just not talk about this draft ruling. Nevertheless, MP Scott Aitchison declared that he is pro-choice. Jean Charest and Patrick Brown, who are not MPs, also said they're pro-choice. Pierre Polyev obeyed the directive and said nothing and answered no media interviews because, of course, he wouldn't want to. Leslyn Lewis, also an MP, I think, has said nothing, though in the past she has said she has no hidden agenda. She has a very explicit agenda of the way she would uh, bring in criminalization of sex-selective abortions, coercive abortions, which I'm pretty sure is already illegal, and stop funding abortions overseas, among other things, and that she is a very pro-life candidate. Meanwhile, the Liberals and the NDP, I think, have taken a stronger stance of not just trying to use this as a wedge as they always have, but at this point actually going, all right, activists have told us here is where you can't get an abortion in Canada, which is actually a significant chunk of the country just because of access issues. What are we going to do to fix that? Even in the 2021 election, the Liberal government promised a number of things, regulations under the Canada Health Act to guarantee access to sexual and reproductive health care services, some funding, and to end the charitable status of anti-abortion organizations like crisis pregnancy centers. Not much of that has been done. I think some of the money's gone through, but we've had things like it was only a few years ago that Prince Edward Island allowed abortions. Like There just weren't any being done on the island because the hospital wasn't offering them, and so people who needed one had to take a ferry, which then becomes a whole thing. And so that disparate access is a serious issue. Thankfully, a little bit, this draft opinion in the US has kicked some of this movement into gear. So where you have the conservatives saying, we won't do anything, you actually have the liberals and NDP talking about what more should we be doing. And the bloc, of course, siding similarly and doing its usual fun antics of like, we're going to introduce a unanimous consent motion to make sure this house is pro-choice and they didn't get it. The block's good for procedural antics. Yeah, that, that does seem to be their forte. Yeah, with, with respect to the, the access thing, it's Little Mail had a, a map in one of their coverage that kind of shows uh, basically travel times to, to senators were wanting an abortion. And it really does look like a population map with a few like odd splotches in, in Quebec, far away from St. Lawrence, which is interesting. Not what you would have expected, but it, that kind of I think goes to a, a more general issue: is that a lot of the country is hard to service with healthcare facilities, and like, 
PI had some of its own issues around perhaps a little reluctant fund stuff, but also it's a province of what? 140,000. 140,000? It's pretty common for them not to have a a particularly deep bench of specialists. Special, yeah. Sorry, it's pretty common for them not to have a particularly comprehensive access to, to specialty procedures and require people to travel to Halifax for a lot of procedures. And like that's how healthcare works in the Maritimes of Halifax becomes a center for, for a lot of healthcare that people travel to because the smaller provinces, particularly ones that have pretty rural populations, just have a hard time delivering those services and i think we can obviously want there to be better and quicker access to this stuff but a lot of it comes down to like it's just hard to provide healthcare services in there and it's going to take some like dedicated funding to to change that it's not even that complicated though like one of the things global mail highlights is that abortion isn't just a surgical procedure anymore there is the pill mifid Chimso, I apologize that I can't pronounce the name, the abortion pill. Canada only got it in 2017, like one of the last developed countries to approve it. And even though that pill is available, you still have trouble getting it in a lot of places, according to patients, with doctors being unwilling to prescribe it. So women have to go to abortion clinics far that are still that far away. All of these things are easy to fix. Like I saw one comparison in another article highlighting that Canada has fewer abortion clinics than Sweden, but Sweden has like a fraction of our population. Like if this becomes a priority, it's actually one of the cheaper procedures, I believe, to manage and implement. It's just a like cultural issue that it's treated as the taboo when it really needs to be normalized and just accepted as part of our healthcare system. To the same point as many other, like, it is not a wildly complicated, difficult to perform procedure that requires a hospital necessarily. And I think we need to keep that in mind when we talk about access. So I am glad to see it on the debate table. A lot of work's being done. Look for your local pro choice organization to support. And I don't know, the other thing the federal government is also talking about is making sure that the border guards and CBSA aren't going to turn away anyone from the border who is coming to Canada to seek an abortion, which is just some grim, but unfortunately, likely scenarios that are going to start happening as we... I hate making the freaking Handmaid's Tale references because they seem trite but it also does feel apt. Anyway, I'm just really sad for America. Yeah, it's uh, it's not great news for America, for sure. A little more close to home. I'm not looking forward to us doing another round of important American culture wars here for the, the liberals to hit the opposition parties over the head with, which is no doubt going to happen. I'm going to be a little curious to see how much of this actually gets followed through and how much the, the liberals just keep as a, a live controversy to juice their own electoral fortunes. That's just the thing, right? Because there are real issues that have been flagged here in Canada. They're different issues. We need to make sure we're talking about them differently. And I think we've done that. But the liberals have been so good at talking the talk and failing to walk the walk. Well, Maybe with yeah. this confidence and supply agreement, the NDP can hold them to the fire to follow through, even though this wasn't technically in there. I'm pretty sure they see eye to eye in rhetoric, at least. Let's talk quick takes. Spinning into an entirely different direction, the housing crisis continues unabated across the province. Actually, things have settled a little bit, arguably, in the last month in the housing market. Prices haven't dropped, but sales have slowed a little bit, and maybe that's optimistic. But what's interesting- I, I wouldn't read too much into w- no, any one month's one month. result. Uh, what's really interesting is this Burnaby Now article from Graham Wood, where he went through all of the public disclosures of the 87 MLAs to find out how many homes they all own. And 81 of 87 MLAs 
own their home or own a home, and 42 of them have a second property, and 13 have three or more. The MLAs who do not report having a house or residential property are NDP MLAs Adrian Dix, Megan Dykeman, Mabel Elmore, Andrew Mercier, and Brenda Bailey, uh, and BC Liberal MLA Ellis Ross. Both Greens, Adam Olson and Sonia Furstenau, report owning homes. Notably, Sonia Furstenau, leader of the Greens, owns uh, three homes. She has her home in Shawnigan Lake, where they have no mortgage on it. Her and her spouse have a second home in Mill Bay that's worth $1.35 million, And her spouse owns a home in Victoria worth $1.5 million that I believe is rented out. Other prominent homeowners, opposition leader in the house, Shirley Bond, has three or, has three or more, according to the article. Mike DeYoung, I think only has one now, his own home, but he sold five investment properties in Abbotsford last year. None of them were super expensive. They were condos for a couple hundred thousand each, but still selling five properties in a year is pretty notable when you're also an MLA. The NDP's standout is Jagrup Barr, who owns seven properties in Prince George through an investment company. And Murray Rankin owns a Victoria home, a Saturna Island recreational property, and rents out two home apartments in Victoria. Friend of the pod, uh, Stuart Prest, says it's a reasonable question to ask how many homes people own when they're talking about the housing crisis. You take anything fun away from this article? Sonia Furstenau's argument on why it's not a big deal. She owns multiple homes this week. But, I don't know, as long as they're renting these out and they're not uh, just sitting collecting dust, like, I... I honestly don't care that much. Like, we have a big housing problem in BC, but fundamentally, that's driven by there not being enough housing housing units generally to, to go around. And some percentage of people are going to rent, and I don't know, it's not the end of the world if the person they're renting from happens to be an MLA rather than I don't know some lawyer who owns a second who owns a rental property in Vancouver or whatever. Yeah, none of it was that surprising. MLAs make $115,000 a year, I think I looked up, and you get more if you're a cabinet member, etc. So it's a fairly cushy salary that doesn't put home ownership. Now it is still hard to own a home, but it doesn't put condo ownership out of reach for many of them if they're good with their money and stay there for a while. Yeah, and particularly the ones that live outside of, or, sorry, and particularly the ones that represent an area far from Victoria, like, you're going to have to find a a place in Victoria, and then it becomes a thing. Like, there's reasons why people may go for second properties and whatnot, particularly if their uh, financial situation allows. I, I, I get it. I mean, it should we have these disclosures and can go through it and know, but there's nothing inherently wrong with being a landlord. So I don't know, it's not the sort of thing that I think uh, made for anything but uh, gotcha politics, if you really want to get into it. And there's you know, a few barbs being traded back and forth over some of this stuff, but we'll put the link in the show notes and you can find the disclosures for your MLA on the BC legislature's website. Something that is great to see, though, is uh, Ben Bollinger's injury last year from being hit by a car while biking and then being charged the damage to the car from ICBC has a positive end, it seems, as ICBC has officially changed its policy and will no longer seek damages from cyclists and pedestrians who get hit by cars. It's not so sad to... Yeah. It's a little nuts that this had to be a policy. Like, what, why the hell wasn't it already in place? But better late than never. And, ah, so that's for Ben, they had to go through all that and become an activist on the issue to get this changed. But uh, good that it's happened. Yeah. So, specifically, ICBC is no longer going to uh, seek to recover costs, specifically in name situations such as when a Cyclist or pedestrian has suffered a severe catastrophic injury if there's been a fatality. 
or if ICB or when ICBC must determine the damage liability is 50-50 because there's not enough evidence to determine what happened. And then they do say other claims involving cyclists or pedestrians who suffer non-severe injury would be sent to a committee of experts to be carefully considered. Not a huge amount of details on what that means, but I guess if a... If a cyclist is driving down the road swinging chains as they ride or throwing javelins and hits a car that stopped and damages the car and the cyclist is fine maybe they owe them some money that seems yeah. fair but that's the kind maybe that's what they're thinking of yeah you could probably come up if you think about it you should probably come up with a situation or two but yeah it's probably not a uh, particularly common occurrence the other big announcement from the provincial government this week is that the province and the Urban Mayor's Council have agreed to coordinate an investigation into prolific offenders. So recently, the a number of mayors have been lobbying the province concerned about crime by repeat offenders, prolific offenders. It's all they're just worried about crime and specific criminals and it's been raised a lot by BC Liberals in the legislature, I believe, at question period. And so David E.B., Attorney General, finally said, fine, we will launch an inquiry. Doug Lepard, former Vancouver Police Deputy Chief, and Amanda Butler, a health researcher and criminologist, will study this issue and report back within 120 days on what we should do about this. It seems like the NDP doesn't care, but cares enough that they have to do something. The, the timing is interesting. The 120 days puts that basically 40 days before the municipal elections, where this has already become a bit of a campaign issue. So uh, it, it's curious, could this take the wind out of the sails or put a bunch into it of some of those campaigns, depending on what the report says? Eh, maybe. Probably good they're looking at the issue. Like, but yeah, we'll, we'll have to see what the, the report says. Yeah, I, I'm i skeptical of the scale of the issue versus just the, you know, it's a complaint about crime waves that are always suspect based on the data presented is always like slicing police data narrowly to suggest something is worse. And overall, I, I the broad trends tend to be that crime is down. I'm going to be interested to see what they find because there are definitely like instances that pop that you know stick out as, as cases, but how representative they are is a another question. But there's you know, every now and then you come across a, a story of someone who's been arrested with fifty or a hundred convictions on stuff, and, and you do have to wonder like what what's going on where someone with that many convictions is still out there doing crime and stuff, rather than being dealt with by the system more effectively. The simple but answer is systemic could... racism and over-policing of certain communities. But that was the whole that does not explain focus all of, it, of really. it explains like, a lot. The, the, the one that comes to mind is there was something like a year ago about so, someone who got um, busted stealing uh, it was like a truckload of jeans or something and the, the reporting had said that he'd had a hundred and two I want to say can previous convictions or something and like yeah there are issues of, of racism and over policing and stuff that's no reason to to steal a merchant's inventory we also shouldn't be you know governing our policy based on anecdotes yeah which is why this is good so we can actually get a, a better sense of the problem and finally the federal electoral boundaries redistricting and finally the federal electoral districts redistribution commission has come back with its proposals for what British Columbia should look like in the next federal election. And it's a mess. BC gets one more riding shoved in the Okanagan, which I have no complaints about that. I think that's it's either there or Metro Van, the fastest growing regions. But when you look around Metro Vancouver, Vancouver ridings are now encroaching on Burnaby as well as like New West is spilling into Surrey. Coquitlam is also pushing into Burnaby. My riding of Coquitlam, Port Coquitlam, 
cut straight down to the Fraser River for some reason, but like Port Coquitlam is actually pulled out to the Langley riding. I'm just I'm confused. To, yeah, I, I'm going to be now two blocks closer to the edge of Vancouver East, which annoys me because I would rather be on the other side of the, the line and in Vancouver Granville where the uh, there's a chance my vote will actually mean something. Oh, actually, so it, the it, best was Dustin Godfrey found on one Burnaby riding, six houses get like cordoned off to join the riding on the other side of a park rather than the riding that's across the street from them. Just six houses have to hilarious. go over there. Oh, yeah, right. Where it, oh, They're not even on the park. It's uh, squished between the against the highway there across from Burnaby Lake. So there's yeah, lots, of, a lots mess of questions. Under this. Like uh, Vancouver South and Vancouver Kingsway just take random bites out around Metro Town out of uh, Burnaby South. So if you dislike this, there's going to be hearings all summer and all fall across the province. You can submit your complaints about your specific riding to their public participation feedback form. You can also play around with their interactive mapping tool. That's fun. Yeah, we're going to have new districts eventually. Yeah, Locally here, I think probably Surrey's the place that it's, would see the most change if these maps are adopted with some fairly significant redrawing there, which I don't know, Surrey can be a swing area, so it's not sure how it would shake out, but it would definitely be something to watch. We'll have the link in the show notes, so feedback to those as soon as you can. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.